Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the December 2021 Mark Leverage podcast. Great to be back with you again. A couple of months ago, and I was thinking ahead to December, I was wondering whether, as restrictions due to COVID were being relaxed by the UK government, whether December would actually turn into another reasonable festive season in terms of performing. I sort of reasoned, well, if people have been up to now unable to have events, which of course they hadn't been able to, if they've been starved of live entertainment, then the chances are that they would think, right, now we've got this opportunity, whether it be companies or families, to celebrate at Christmas and to to have some entertainment and to get things back to more what they would normally expect to be doing at this time of year. I have to say I've been a bit disappointed. It could be just me. Could be that others are very very busy but i have to say that in our neck of the woods for me personally anyway it hasn't really been the case there have been a few inquiries but not a huge flood as i thought there might be and although i've got one or two bookings to to do in this period coming up nothing like i would expect to have on a normal if there is such a thing anymore such a normal in a normal december I was trying to work out whether this is just coincidence for me personally or whether there is more of a trend here. I mean, it could be, you see, that I reasoned that people, although they are keen perhaps to have some entertainment, it's maybe coming a bit too soon. Covid has not gone away. In fact, it's, it's uh, as I'm recording this, it's rampaging through Europe at the moment uh, and putting countries such as France, Germany and Austria in, in a lot of trouble. And although it, it does, we haven't in the UK taken as many restrictions, uh, put them back in force again as they are having to in, in some places in Europe, nevertheless, there is an underlying feeling that the number of infections is quite high and is likely to continue to be so for quite a while. And so I suspect that there are a lot of people who are either very cautious about arranging events, I think particularly for businesses and with uh, office parties or Christmas events for corporate um, sort of entities. All of these are probably thinking, ah, are we really able to justify getting lots of people together in a room and having a dinner or a dinner dance or something like that? Maybe they're feeling actually no we're probably not are we being irresponsible so early in the what we all hope is going to be a gradual getting back to normal process is it really a bit too early to be doing this and i think possibly for a lot of people they're feeling that yes it probably is and if they're going to have something it will either be very low key or in small numbers and if it's in very small numbers the chances are they're probably not going to want entertainment So even for families, will families be able to get together after the experience of last Christmas where we were all promised that Christmas would not be affected and then at the last minute it was and it destroyed uh, family get-togethers over the Christmas period. Nobody's real fault, it was the situation and, and these things have to be done. But there's that sort of lingering uncertainty, I think, for everybody that things are not back to normal yet and therefore the normal rules of engagement perhaps don't apply. And if I had an example of this a, a few weeks back, uh, I, my daughter and I were going to go and see a music concert. We had tickets, we'd had them for a while, it's been something we were really looking forward to and I went on the train up to Surrey to go the following day with her and the day before she caught Covid, she tested positive immediately our plans were completely thrown in the dustbin. 
we, we, we obviously couldn't go. Uh, I was fine. I did a test. I was fine. I was clear, but, but she wasn't. The rest of her family were also fine where I was staying. Nobody else had it, just her. She may have picked it up at work, probably, I would imagine, anyway. But what it meant was that we, we suddenly, on the day when we were supposed to be going out in the evening to this concert, we weren't able to go. And it was too late to get rid of the tickets and so on and so forth. So there were just there were a couple of empty seats where we would have been. And you can imagine this scenario happening in a lot of places where, and I, I notice all the magic shows that are now coming forward again and, and advertising and so on and so forth. And I'm sure that there'll be members of the audience who have similar experiences where they're right at the last minute, they're not able to go. So things are uncertain. And uh, if you're somebody who normally does a lot of shows, I certainly hope that your experience is better than mine and that you have a more successful period over the, the sort of festive time than you might otherwise expect. I was catching up the other day with a bit of uh, reading of some magic circulars. And I think it was the October one. I was um, looking at the reviews section. Now, the reviewer, they only have one reviewer, and it's Bob Gill. And in fact, Bob, for a few years, was a reviewer for us at Magic Scene. And eventually, because I think he was doing so many reviews uh, for the Magic Circular, he felt that he couldn't really cope with both. So he left us, and now I, I believe he just does the circular. And he, is, he really enjoys writing, I think. He loves words, does Bob. And um, he often, the, the, usually when he does the circular reviews, he'll start off by talking about something for, I don't know, a few hundred words. So it can be any topic. And the topic that he, that he touched on, and which I found absolutely fascinating this time, and the one I was reading in the October issue, was where he said that um, the principles of reviewing products in the circular were such that he'd been advised that if a trick didn't really pass muster, if it really wasn't very good, that I think he, the words he quoted were, they weren't going to waste space in the magazine with reviewing them. So in other words, if a trick's not very good, you're not going to see that review in the circular. And if that's true, I thought, well, that's, that's rather extraordinary, isn't it? Because it opens up all sorts of questions as to, well, first of all, Who's actually going to make that decision about whether a trick is suitable for a start? In what way does it have to be unsuitable? Is it in the editor's opinion? Is it in Bob's opinion as the reviewer? Is it based on, well, I don't know what it's based on. Is it too, if it's too expensive, does that mean, well, you can't review it because it's too expensive. It's, you know, we consider it to be too expensive. I mean, there are so many aspects of a, of a trick that have to be taken into consideration. And, and certainly in Magic Scene, and when Bob was working for us, he would have written within this framework. We like to think that there are, no matter what type of trick it is and how good or bad it is, there will, will be something in there that's positive, that we try to find something positive to say about it. And if there are things that we think the, the potential purchasers should know about things that are detrimental that might make them not want to buy it, we're going to tell them those too. It, it is, of, of course, in, in terms of reviews, always a very subjective viewpoint, but nevertheless, there are occasions where there are things that are clearly wrong. Uh, the, the, the publicity for, for an effect may say can be worked surrounded, and the reviewer looks at it and you can see that clearly it really can't, not in practical terms. So I think the reviewer needs to tell 
the potential customer, well, look, it says on the instructions, uh, on the packaging, that you can do it surrounded, but actually you won't be able to, so don't buy it thinking that you will. Now, that's a negative comment. It may be the only negative comment, but it is one. Now, if that was, if that was to go into the circular, would they perhaps not publish something because of that negative comment? They say, well, we, you know, we don't want to waste paper telling people that you can't work this surrounded and that the props aren't very well made or something, so we better not put it in. It, I suppose it depends mainly what the reviews are for. If they're just for entertainment or just to to say well done to those products that are, are really, really good, well, okay, that's fine. But I think personally that reviews are serving a purpose to the reading community. Most magicians, to a greater or lesser extent, are consumers of magic. We all love to buy things. Some people buy a lot, others very rarely, but we all buy something from a magic dealer at some point. So I think as, as a review team or as reviewers generally, surely we, it is in, a, in the interest of our readers for us to show the good, the bad and the indifferent and to open up their minds to the possibility that this trick might be very good, this is not so good, this is pretty awful but that we shouldn't be taking away those that aren't very good. We need them to be able to see those too, because it's all part of the service. And if something is very bad, no, no reviewer wants to pan something unnecessarily. I don't think any reviewer ever sets out to look to really slate something. But there are tricks that, or products that really aren't good enough uh, in the view of the reviewer. And I think that the customer potential customer needs to be told that. And it is not, therefore, a waste of paper in a magazine to express those slightly negative views. Are you free on Wednesday the 8th of December at 7.30 in the evening UK time? Because if you are, I would like to invite you to attend the debut, the premiere of my brand new lecture. It's called Leverage Leisure Demand. And I've called it that because I reckon nobody will be able to pronounce the second of those two words. Actually, people have enough trouble pronouncing leverage. So the other word, <laughs> no chance. But it looks OK when it's written. This is my latest collection of magic, which I've extracted from the files of eCrub Pro. And once again, I have put together what I hope is a very interesting and exciting selection of close up and stand up magic. There will be magic with all sorts of different items, coins, cards, sponge balls. There's a load of mental stuff. It really is ring ring stuff. It, it really is a nice, varied lecture. And the nice thing is that the over the last few years where I've been doing these eClub Pro centric type of lectures, um, none of the items in the new lecture have been in one of those eClub Pro lectures before. So if you've seen any of them, you can still come because it'll all be new stuff. So the format is the same. Basically, I will perform and explain the items over Zoom, of course. So it doesn't matter where you are. You can join us whether you're on the far side of the planet or whether you're just round the corner. And uh, it, the lecture will last a couple of hours with a break in the middle. And it should be a load of fun. And I'm really, I'm really pleased with this particular selection of magic, too. There's some really, I think, very nice, interesting ideas in here and the great thing is there's virtually no sleight of hand required everything is very straightforward it's very practical and it, and i think it's 
it's great magic, magic that you will enjoy learning and hopefully also performing. So it's Wednesday, the 8th of December. So depending on when you're listening to this, it's going to be pretty soon. And all you need to do, it costs £15. And all you need to do is to go to my website, markleverage.co.uk, and you can sign up. And when you place your order, as it were, for a ticket, you download the ticket and it'll have the Zoom link on that. And then we will look forward to joining you. The doors open sort of 7.15 and we get going at about 7.30. And if any, if the others that I've done in this category of Zoom lecture have anything to go by, we will have a really good time. And it's been lovely to, to have people joining from all over the world. Uh, this is what I love about the Zoom format is that it's it's not... Uh, dependent on the people who can get to an event in a local area or have to make a huge effort to get there it, it can be anybody almost anywhere so um, perhaps something that you would like to join too if so go and get your ticket now and I'll look forward to literally seeing you on Wednesday the 8th of December at 7 30 p.m. One of the real joys about being a table hopping or strolling magician is that it gives you the opportunity sometimes to take advantage of either unexpected or unusual one-off situations. It might be something that somebody says or some situation, something that happens that you couldn't predict in advance, but which you can take advantage of. And I think this contrasts quite a bit um, with, let's say, a stage act or a cabaret act, because those tend to be a lot more formal a lot more structured, uh, that there are time constraints and physical constraints, which, although a good performer can sometimes take advantage of something that happens, it tends everything is at a bit of more of a distance. Whereas when you're a, a close-up magician, you're so close to your audience that when you sometimes you, a spectator will say something or do something and you can spot it immediately and respond to it, it can give you some of the best moments that you will get when performing magic. Something simple like you might ask somebody to name a card as you're taking a deck out of the box. They say four of diamonds and you notice the four of diamonds is actually just completely by chance happens to be the card on the bottom of the face, you know, on the bottom of the deck, on the face of the deck. Now, you could just ignore that and just carry on and do what you were going to do anyway. Or, having noted that it's the card, you could, could you not palm it off, load it into your card to wallet and show that the card that they've just named completely at random happens to be in the wallet? Or you could reverse it secretly and find it reversed in the deck. That's what I mean. I mean, taking advantage of, uh, of a set of circumstances that you couldn't have predicted were going to happen, but which, when it did, you were sort of on the ball enough to make some mileage out of it. But I think the thing that it means is that in order to be able to do this, you really do have to be firstly very confident in what you're doing, but also um, very sure of your tricks and of your performing personality. Because it's no good getting distracted, if that's the right word, and going off at a tangent. It could be that it's not a complete trick in itself that you're going to do, but a gag or a couple of little funny bits and then you need to come back to the trick that you were that you'd already started. And if you're not completely uh, au fait with your material, then it could be that you can't remember where, what you were doing. Or what, now, where, where was I? What was I doing? And that's hopeless. And if you feel like that, then it's much more difficult, of course, to take advantage of these unusual circumstances. 
Whereas if you are very much on top of your material and you work a lot, you get very quick and slick at taking advantage of these opportunities. And I think this gap of performing that we've all had over the last couple of years um, has changed that dynamic initially, for, certainly for me anyway. I don't feel quite so on top of things, as I mentioned before, I think, as I was when I was performing all the time. And this gap, it will come back, but this gap is at the moment is affecting my ability to feel as comfortable as I did doing a lot of things that I do. It's not that I can't do them. I just feel sort of fractionally off the pace. And so if an opportunity arises where I could go off piste, as it were, and, and do something unusual, then I would have to be a yeah, fairly sure that I can get back to where I was already proceeding down the line of a, a different trick. But it is lovely to be able to do that. And some of my best and funniest moments have definitely come when a spectator has said something or done something and I've been able to very quickly respond, usually verbally, to what's happened and then use it as a callback throughout the rest of the, my time with that group to refer back to that funny moment and get a lot of mileage out of it. And that only happened because I was able to respond to what the spectator did or said. So look out for those opportunities. If, if you are a strolling magician, don't ignore them. Keep your antennae waving around and, and pick up on things. And if you have the confidence and the experience, then grab it and see if you can and run with it. And if it doesn't come out quite as you expected it, it kind of doesn't matter because with this type of magic it, it's fairly informal anyway isn't it well at least it should be i think so it, it it has a bit of a jazzy feel to it a lot of close-up so it won't matter and then you can always come back to the strong trick you were going to do anyway and nothing is lost whereas if you don't give these opportunities a try then you can sometimes miss out on wonderful opportunities Now, it's often said that necessity is the mother of invention. And I think this is very true for magic and magicians. If you're trying to create something new, it's so much harder to do so when you're doing it with no context, with no end game in mind. When there is, you're trying to create something in total isolation just because you want to create something, I find it much easier if I have a reason for creating this particular type of effect. So it might be there's a show coming up and I need to create a particular effect that will involve, let's say it's an adult birthday party, the, the birthday man or woman, I want to involve them in something and I decide that knowing perhaps what job they do or something else about their personal background, I decide that I would like to create a special effect that not only will be very personal to them but will reflect their interests. And it's because you are focused, or I, I would be focused, on the, the criteria of that particular effect that it would give me something to start with, something to work on. Whereas if I just go, right, I think I'm going to invent a card trick today. It, it, where do you start? I mean, it's just hopeless. So this thing about necessity, creating uh, the, the need to, uh, to come up with something new, I think is really, really important. And there can be different reasons why somebody might want to do that. 
For instance, if the magician is looking to sell some magic on the open marketplace, then the motivation here would be, well, I need to have a range of magic to sell. And when you're starting to think about selling to magicians, you need to think to yourself, well, am I going to attend conventions? Yes, I am. OK, it needs to be something ideally then that I can demonstrate to a group of people standing in front of my dealer stand. Something that is perhaps visual that I can attract attention to get people to come to the stand. You know, there are a number of criteria. It's got to be something that is easily reset, that is not too fragile, because quite frankly, the, when you if you go to Blackpool Convention and you're deming all day for two or three days, thing, your props really do can take a hammering when you do them a lot. So there are lots of reasons why, and it's got to be something that um, has not been thought of or sold before in this exact format. It needs to be something that you can get manufactured, something that you can market effectively. Some of the best tricks are very, very difficult to market and have bombed as a result because the, the person who's produced the trick, although it's a fantastic idea, just can't get across to potential customers how great it is. It may seem obvious, just tell them it's great. No, it's not as easy as that. And um, when there's a lot of competition in the marketplace, everybody trying to get the attention of the potential customers, then sometimes there are good ideas that fall through the cracks. So selling magic might be one reason. Or it could be that, again, a bit like me, you, you have a lecture and you want to create something new for a lecture. And you think, well, I've got tricks in this lecture that use coins and they use cards, they use silks, they use rope. Oh, I haven't got anything with a sponge ball. Maybe I could come up with this nice sponge ball routine. So immediately the focus is it's something that needs to be able to be explained clearly that people in a lecture can see, can understand, and ideally go away and do. So again, it, it, is, it has brought the very broad remit of do a trick for a lecture down to something much more specific. Of course, it could be you just want something new for your show. It could be that you do a children's show and you've got one particular routine that you've been doing for years. Let's say the cut and restored rope. You've got a routine for the cut and restored rope and you, you keep on seeing the same kids and you kind of love the cut and restored rope but you can't use the same routine. So then you think to yourself, right, okay, well using the basis of the cut and restored routine, uh, rope routine, can I come up with a different effect or different presentation or a different angle that will allow me still to cut and restore some rope but all the stuff around it will be very different and therefore it will come up as uh, something fresh. And so the kids will feel that they haven't seen it before. So there's your motivation, is to, is to create something for your children's show. Or it could just be that you just want something new to practice. You know, you're perhaps a bit tired of, or either you're tired of the tricks that you, you currently have, you've done them to death, and you think, oh God, I'm so bored, I, I really want to get to grits with something new. And so creating something, let's say it's a coin effect, so I want to create something that I, that I can practice and try to master. And you might either come up with something yourself or of course you might find something in a book or online or wherever. But nevertheless the point is you're trying to create something new that will work for you and the motivation is you're looking for something new to practice. So if you are a creative sort of person, try 
try to do just that. Try to be creative, but not in a vacuum. Try to be creative for a very specific set of um, criteria. Because if you do that, I think you'll find it, it's easier because it will focus your mind better and you're more likely to come up with something that's worthwhile. When you watch a fellow magician perform, because you're a magician, and unless you have very little experience, the chances are that you're going to be watching what he does with a particular viewpoint, with a particular knowledge. And so when that magician does some sleight of hands or some nice moves, you probably know what those moves are. It doesn't necessarily, although it might sometimes, but it doesn't necessarily fool you because you, you think, oh, he's doing a so-and-so move. And if it's done nicely or done very expertly, then you give that person credit, don't you? And you think, oh, that was really awesome. And some, some people are very overtly skillful when they perform magic. And magicians love those type of acts because they are looking at it from a technical standpoint and they think to themselves, God, look at the skill of that. That's amazing. The trouble is, if you then take that particular style and you put it in front of lay people, there's a feeling that, oh, well, they're lay people. They don't know anything. And so therefore it'll be easy to fool them. They won't know what's going on. Well, th there may be elements of that, I'm sure. But if moves are too overt, then to lay people who don't have the expertise to know what is and what is not a move, what is a flourish, for instance, it's not actually doing anything technical, it's in the sense of making the trick work, it's, it's simply making the thing look nice. They don't know the difference between that and a, a secret move that they've actually copped to look at. And, ah. What did he do there? He did something there. And and I think sometimes perhaps as, as magicians, we, we kind of delude ourselves into thinking that we are fooling lay people more than perhaps we are. I don't think it's that lay people actually know what we're doing all the time. I think it's just that they sometimes suspect that we are doing something. And that's why the performers who I think are the most effective for lay people entertainment in, te in, te in technical terms, are either those who use no sort of clever sleight of hand moves and get use subtlety or, or gimmicks, or those who really have got the performance of the moves down so well that they are genuinely invisible. An invisible pass that is actually invisible. And there aren't many people like that around. Because for most of us, there's nearly always a tell whether it's doing a coin vanish or a double lift or whatever it is, there's always a tell. And when, as magicians, we, we watch other magicians doing this, we kind of accept, unless it's done really badly, we kind of accept that, don't we? We know, oh yes, you know, he's doing a double lift there or he's doing a triple lift or he's doing some other card control or a force. We know what's going on without ever analysing whether that's actually very effective for people who are not magicians. Because I suspect that sometimes it isn't particularly effective. And I think judging, and, th and that's one reason why magic for magicians and magic for lay people, though there are lots of overlaps in terms of the material and the methods used, there are also two very distinct types of uh, method that need to perhaps be applied. 
Technical stuff for magicians is great because that's what magicians love. They love to see technical things. They like to admire overt skill. That's all part of the fun, trying to, to guess which move is being used. Sometimes to the detriment of not even bothering to, to watch the trick in its entirety, just analysing the steps that take it through from start to finish. Whereas lay people, they're there to be entertained and they're looking for the effect. And if they think, well, he did something there, even if they don't know what it is, then maybe the, the strength of that magic is diminished. And I've talked about this before, that you've got to be very careful with lay people, I think, that they don't come to simplistic conclusions about how you're achieving your magic, even though they may be way, way away from what the real method is. But if they think they've got a solution, then sometimes that's enough for them to, ah, no, I saw what you did there. Yeah, no, no, no. Now you did something funny there, didn't you? And it's really annoying because you think, no, I didn't do that, but now they think that I did. So therefore the trick is to a certain extent blown. So I think sometimes looking at your material and thinking, is there something in the way I'm doing this or this particular effect, which is a telltale to lay people and they may think they know how it's done. And if so, can I change the method in order to make it more bulletproof and not just something that other magicians would appreciate the skill of, but that lay people, it wouldn't give them ammunition to think they knew how the trick was done. Well, thank you so much for listening to the latest podcast. It's been lovely to do these podcasts for yet another year and we come to the final one of the year, obviously this being it. I hope that you're going to have a very good December and I'll look forward to starting a new year with you with the next podcast in January. Bye for now.